with some that would fly a plane into a building and destroy innocent people in the name of their God, that problem really came home to me. How do we explain these passages in light of who we know God is and who we believe God is? Is our picture of God imperfect and consistent? Are we morally superior to God and that we can judge these actions as being wrong? Some of the things tonight that I said, that if you present this to other people who, who say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible because of this. These answers may not satisfy. These answers may not satisfy. Because some people are determined that they don't want to believe that's the premise they start with. And anything that you can say to pierce their faith, they're going to be resistant to. But I do hope that it can give you reason to understand the God of the Bible. I hope it can give you reason to understand Him. I hope it can give you reason to explain Him. And there may be, and there are, some people out there who may ask that question with a sincere heart and are really troubled by this question who can be touched by a biblical answer. So what would we say? First of all, How do we explain the problem of holy war? One, we need to understand that the Bible presents the sins of the Canaanites as extremely grievous. They were horrific. They were horrible. We only see glimpses of this. In these passages, it is not a description of the Canaanites themselves. These passages are more of a description of warnings to Israel and telling them this is what the Canaanites did. And this is why they're driven out of the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9, the warning is against the people being self-righteous. Do not say, I am coming into land because I am so righteous. It's not because you're so righteous. It's because they are so wicked. Because the people had lived in such wickedness and sin. That's the reason you are driving them out. And you are dispossessing them. In Leviticus 18, the Bible warns against all kinds of sexual immorality. And the Bible says this is what was practiced in Egypt early in the text in Leviticus 18. And later in the text, it says this is what is practiced in Canaan before you. And this is why you're driving out the Canaanites. They were engaged in all types of sexual crimes. But let's look at Deuteronomy 19. In Deuteronomy 19, the text tells us in verse Deuteronomy 18 in verse 9, Deuteronomy 18 verse 9, when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. One who uses divination. One who practices witchcraft. One who interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or one who casts a spell. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. God is going to drive them out of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 12 because of these things. Notice the first thing on the list. The first thing on this list is one who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. There are two kings of Israel who are said to do this. Ahaz in 2 Kings 16 and Manasseh in 2 Kings 21. Do you know what that is? That is offering your children as human sacrifice. Can you imagine the horror? Can you imagine how horrific it would be to witness a crime like that? And God says, their sin is great. Their sin is great. And if you do these things, you're going to end up like they are. You're going to end up destroyed and driven out of the land. Their sins were horrific. Secondly, God was very patient with these people. You remember the context of Genesis 15? Where God speaks to Abraham... And God tells Abraham that he and his descendants will inherit this land. He tells Abraham to take these animals and to divide them. And remember this where the flaming torch passes through the pieces of the animal. And we can say much about that context in Genesis chapter 15. But God tells Abraham this. He says in Genesis chapter 15 verse 3 that your descendants will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And I will judge that nation whom they serve. And afterward they come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. That in the fourth generation they shall return home for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now verse 16 is what I am particularly focusing on. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God is telling Abraham, before Abraham ever has a son, God is telling Abraham before they have ever gone down into the land of Egypt, I know these people that you are living among, I know they are wicked, I know they are incredibly wicked. But your family is going to go down to the land of Egypt. They're going to be enslaved there for 400 years. Then they're going to come back from them. That, and then they will take the land. God was giving them, at the very least, 
400 years to repent of their wickedness. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is giving man an opportunity to come back to him. God is giving even these Canaanites an opportunity to come back to him. Now, do you remember the story in the book of Exodus when Moses holds up his hand, Israel prevails, when he lets down his hands, Israel is defeated? It's in Exodus 17. You remember who they were fighting with? They were fighting with the Amalekites, the Amalekites. You read that, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Now, another passage that is important to this discussion that I do not have on the PowerPoint, and I would encourage you to make a note of, is Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. That passage talks about the, uh, the, the Amalekites attacking those who were weak and weary among the Israelites. Those who were lagging behind. So this is my point. The Amalekites initiate the attack against Israel. They attack those who are weak. They attack those who are lagging behind. They attack those who are the most vulnerable. When Moses holds up his hands and trusts to God, Israel prevails. But God tells Joshua, write this in a book. I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now this is the time of Moses. This is about... If I've dated this right chronologically, about 1445 or so B.C. Then, in the reign of Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is told, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. Utterly destroy them, do not spare them, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The length of time Saul reigned in the Old Testament is not told in the Old Testament. The only allusion to it definitely is in Acts 13 which says he reigned for about 40 years. But this, this particular command to Saul took place no earlier than 400 years after the Malachites attacked those who are weak, those who are weary, those who are straggling behind. When Moses held up his hands to God and, and God says, I'm going to blot out their memory from under heaven. It's 400 years between the sentence and between the execution. Why such a long time? Because God was giving them every opportunity to change. I have, along with you, a worldview 
that's built upon this book and upon God. And when I look at this country and I see how blessed we are, how prosperous we are, how peaceful we are, and yet how wicked we are. I am reminded every day of the long suffering of God. I'm reminded of that. Let's not use that long suffering as an indication that everything's okay. Let us remember, as Romans 2 verse 4 states, that the goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. God was patient with the kingdom. God was long-suffering. God doesn't want to destroy any of His people that He's made. He doesn't delight in any of them be lost. Ezekiel 18 verse 23. Ezekiel 18 verse 32. I do not delight in anyone who perishes. Now I know what I'm about to say is difficult for an unbelieving world to grasp. It is difficult for believers to grasp. Even though God commanded these people's destruction. I think the Bible is clear that God's love for these people is intense. I ask you to turn to Hosea 11. Now, I'm going to grant this. When you turn to Hosea 11 and we look at this passage, this passage is not talking about these nations. This passage is talking about God's people. This passage is talking about Israel. Israel, uh, the northern part of the country, is the part that's primarily addressed by Hosea. He does address Judah quite frequently, but he addresses Israel over and over again. Uh, you may remember that I, Hosea 11.1, 1, when, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That was the passage that is quoted in Matthew 2, verse 15, to talk about Jesus as a new Moses who leads a new exodus. But the reason God called Israel out of Egypt is because he loved them. He loved them. They were his son. He is pictured in verse 3 as, as a father who is teaching his child to walk and who rejoices in those first steps of his children. But God is speaking in this context of speaking, of sending judgment on the land of Israel. And he says this in Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is t- turned over within me. All my compassion is kindled. 
I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Adma and Zeboim. Who are those two cities? Who are those two people? They're only mentioned a couple of times. Mentioned in Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. Mentioned uh, in, in Genesis accounts a couple of times. But these were two of the cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is saying as he talks about pouring out judgment upon his people, it is, as, it is as if he is torn in this. How can I make you like Agma? How can I make you like Zoe? I've known parents, and you have too, that have had to draw the line. And tell their children who were involved in wrong things and sinful behavior, who were given opportunities to repent, who were given chances to change, they have had to draw the line and say, You change, or you leave. Was that easy for those parents? Were those parents conflicted emotionally? It is almost as if God is in the same circumstance. And he says, my heart is turned over with it. And I'm going to tell you one thing that's fascinating to me. About that word turned over in Hosea 11 in verse 8. It is a word that's used several times to talk about God overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah. The very same word that is used to describe His judgment on this cities, these cities, is used to describe His compassion and His toward emotions as He must now judge His wicked city. But this is what I'm trying to stress from starting in Hosea 11. The same kind of things that are said about his people whom he handed over to judgment. The same kind of things are said about the nations. We could look... These passages, Isaiah Isaiah 15, 16 and Jeremiah 48, will say about the same things. A hundred years apart, but they will say about the same things. And and I would invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 48. In this section of Jeremiah 46 through Jeremiah 51, there is a section of judgment on the nations pronounced. I granted that there is some difficulty... In knowing exactly to whom all these pronouns refer. But notice in Jeremiah 48 verse 30. God said, I know his fury, declares the Lord, but it's futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing. Therefore I shall well for Moab. Even for all Moab. I cry out. 
I will moan for the men of Caheres. Who is mourning for the cities of Moab when they're destroyed? Look at verse 36. My heart wails like a flute. My heart wails for Moab like flutes. My heart wails like flutes for the men of Kaharis. Therefore, they have lost the abundance it produced. Do you get the point? God is mourning and God is grieving over these pagan cities that are destroyed. That conflict of emotion that God feels when He brings judgment upon His people is the same conflict of emotion He feels when He brings judgment upon a nation created in His image. Is it hard to understand how the same God who could say, I want you to go annihilate these nations, at the same time loves these nations and longs for these nations to repent? Yes. But we have to understand at such moments that God is greater than we are. God is bigger than we are. God cannot be bound. And His love is one that exists even for those who live in rebellion to Him. Now, you can see I'm not going to get to every point that's expressed here. Lex talionis is the idea that a person is punished according to their crime. That they are punished as fits the wrong they have done. We've already introduced 1 Samuel chapter 15. Where God told Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. To destroy them utterly. To destroy the the men and women. To destroy the children. To destroy their livestock. Destroy all of these things. Destroy them completely. Now remember, we talked about Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Say that when Israel was lagging behind, when some were weak, when some were frail, that they were attacked. By the Amalekites. Is it possible that the reason that God brings such a severe judgment on these nations is because these nations have done that same thing to other people? Now you may say, what's your proof of that? My proof of that comes from 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you look at 1 Samuel 15, do you remember that Saul had spared Agag the king alive? 
he had refused to destroy Agag the king. And when he refused to destroy Agag the king, Samuel called for Agag. Agag thought in verse 32, surely the bitterness of death is past. But then Samuel says in verse 33, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Now, the reason that I'm invoking Lex Talionis at this point in time is because of that statement. Your sword has made women childless. Agag had killed children. Agag had killed, uh, had killed uh, the children of mothers. And now his mother would be made childless just as he has done to others. So it will be done to him. If we could know all the Canaanites had done. If we could know all that they had engaged in. May what God said be more understandable. Oh, it's easy for us to sit back 3,000, 4,000 years and to look at how God should have been so much more patient with those people. And some of those very people who think that God should have been more patient just test and see how patient they will be when you disagree with them about God. I want to just touch upon a couple of these last points. Let's go to point six. The Canaanites could have repented. Do you remember Rahab was a harlot in Joshua 2? The spies came to her house. And in Joshua 2, when the spies came to Rahab's house, the Bible tells us that pretty soon, in the network of spies there, the king of Jericho hears that these men have come. They come, they knock on the door, said, where are these men that came to you? And Rahab said, I didn't know where they were from. I didn't know where they were, what they were doing here. And if you hurry up, they just left. If you hurry up, you can catch them. In the meantime, she had hidden them under flax upon the roof. And she goes to the roof and she tells them, I know the Lord your God has given you this land. And I know one day all you are going to inherit all of this land. And I am asking you that you show kindness to me and my family as I have shown kindness to you. And they said, leave this scarlet cord in your window and you bring all your family in this house. And when the day comes that this city of, this, of, of Jericho is destroyed, if this cord is remains here and if your family is in your house, if any of them are killed, their blood is on our hands. And, and Rahab does this, and she's preserved. There were opportunities to repent, but I want you to also look at something else. 
the final point. This instruction that God destroyed the Canaanites is not God's general instruction to deal with all people who differ with us for all time. Was God's general instruction that if you find someone of another nation, of another people, you just go and destroy them? Was that God's general instruction in the Old Testament? You know, in many cultures, in the ancient Near East, if a runaway slave came to you, you immediately sent him back to his master. In Israel, if there was a runaway slave that made it to the land of Israel, you were not to send him back. But they were to show kindness to him. The Bible says, if your enemy's ox or your enemy's donkey goes astray, then return it to him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. That is the more general instruction that God gives to the people of Israel. This exception is for his specific instructions to deal with this specific people at a specific time. That's a very important point. I am not an expert on Islam. But I do think you can compare what is said in the Old Testament with comparing what he said in some places of the Quran. And the Bible shines very brightly in that respect. But I want you to know that all of this fits under the umbrella of God's love for man and God's purpose to save man. God's purpose was always to bless all nations through Abraham. Not just to eliminate all nations, to bless all nations. That was God's purpose. God did not send His Son into the world to bring judgment to the world. For the world was already judged, but God brought His Son into the world to give life. And this God who desires all nations to repent, sent his son to win all nations. He died for all nations to save all peoples and to bring them back into fellowship with him. I know that some of these thoughts are better contemplated and I hope to give them to you for you to do that, for you to think about them. And for you to be able to answer when someone that asks you about the nature of the God of the Bible. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you are holy and you are awesome. Your love for us is beyond our ability to grasp. your holiness and hatred of sin is also beyond our ability to grasp. As we walk in this world and see what you have revealed about yourself, 
Forgive us for our limited view. Forgive us for our limited understanding. Forgive us for not always being able to put the pieces together. But help us to see your love, your holiness. And help us to stand in awe of how great you are. Ultimately, Lord, we do not stand in judgment upon your ways. We bow before you who will stand in judgment. Before whom we will stand in judgment. We bow before you. We recognize your greatness. And we confess to you how frail and weak we are. We pray though that as we go into our world that you may lead us to those who do have a heart. Who are wanting to listen to you. And wanting to seek your message. And wanting to live your way. And help us to give them reasons for faith and hope and strength. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation he brings. In him we pray. Amen. Friend, if we can help you to be right with God, if you believe Jesus died and rose again, if you believe His ultimate purpose is to save you, we invite you to repent of your sin, to be baptized in Christ. We are ready to help you and invite you to come as we stand and sing.